Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, I'm delighted on behalf of the New Culture Forum today to uh, welcome to the show David Frost, Lord Frost of Allenton. Uh, you will know him as Britain's chief Brexit negotiator. Uh, before that, he had a top flight diplomatic and political career, including being ambassador to Denmark. He's also senior fellow at Policy Exchange, for which he has recently written a report on what the government might do in the coming years, um, which is called Holy Issues. Um, thank you very much for joining us, David. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, before we go further into anything particularly political, uh, I wanted to ask you what your general reflections uh, are at the moment on on the past week. We're we're actually recording this on on the Wednesday, and so the state funeral of the Queen was on Monday. What does it told you about Britain the past twelve days? Yeah, it's been an amazing ten days. Obviously, um, it's shown I think that lots of people still feel you know a very deep emotional loyalty and commitment to the monarchy to the country to the things that made this country what it is today which i, I happen to think is is a good thing yeah. and um i think it's been a it's been a pushback against uh you know the conventional view that um uh the country's declining that its history doesn't mean anything that all these things don't count and you know we've seen concrete evidence that a lot of people in the country don't think that way and it's 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 very good were you surprised i wasn't really um i i, I mean i think a lot of people do think like this and when you you get out of SW1, you, you find that very quickly. So no, I'm, I'm not at all surprised. I, I think it's very good that uh, organisations and people who you might have thought would be a bit sceptic uh, actually got with the programme quite quickly on this and understood the depth of feeling and actually began to reflect and think about it a bit. And yeah. I think that's a good sign. I think, uh, I mean, obviously we uh, on the NCF are very much uh, concerned with cultural issues and from my point of view it would seem that this was a strengthening exercise actually. I liked seeing our history almost played out. I believe you were at one of the ceremonies which was the Accession Council. Yeah that right? that's right. I mean, what was, can you tell us a little bit about that? So the one I was at was the parliamentary reception right. of uh, the King and Queen, uh, the formal uh, presentation of addresses and um, I wrote a little bit about it in the Telegraph column last week, and uh, it's, it's a remarkable occasion. You know, this, this, the weight of history yeah. uh, is extremely strong, and the the sense of continuity. You know, this is a very old country. Uh, not many countries have got a historical continuity like we have as a nation state. You know, arguably France is, is maybe the only one, and. Um, we we need to sort of respect this and show it and demonstrate it. So I think it's been very powerful from that point of view. When you were in that article in the Telegraph, um, I should add, of course, that you are a columnist for the Telegraph now as well. Uh, in that article, you talked about the the extraordinarily successful duality of the monarchy and Parliament in our constitution. I mean, mm. over a period of what? 300 years? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we, our history is unusual from that 
point of view, Parliament, um, yes, was a, a check at various times, but more often it's been a partner of the monarchy. Yeah. It survived from the Middle Ages because it was an effective partner of the monarchy in governing the, the country. And over the last 300 years, it's gradually taken more and more of the powers that rested with the king yes. for itself. Yeah. And that, that process of evolution is, is quite unusual to, to Britain. Yes. Uh, well, politics is definitely it, sort of like elbowing its way in again now. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have the party conferences quite soon. Uh, and obviously we ha now have a new, new prime minister and new government. I, I wanted to turn to the, the extended essay, really, rather than report that mm. you did for Policy Exchange, and um, which in some ways I think you, you do in fact point out at the beginning, is not unlike a similar sort of set of recommendations that were developed for Margaret Thatcher when she was in opposition in the 1970s. Mm. Do you think uh, we are in a comparable position now? I think we are in some ways. Um, I think there's the, the sense that I remember a bit from the 70s, although I was obviously fairly young, um, of the end of an era, mm. that a way of doing things uh, had reached its conclusion and now we need to go off in a, a different direction. And uh, the 70s and Mrs Thatcher marks the end of uh, the post-war consensus way of doing things from Attlee and Macmillan and, and so on. And I think what we're seeing now is the end of the conventional wisdom of Blairism, Brownism, Cameronism, Cameronism of you know, the right way to, to manage the economy. And it was mm -hmm. bound up with a single market, with EU membership. It, it involved a very particular view of how to run an economy. And we haven't particularly prospered in, in this over the last 10, 15 years. And I think Liz Truss got the point that we need to go off in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I think one of the points that uh, John Hoskins, who, who wrote that report you refer to, made very strongly and um, he makes it several times in the report is there is no point in doing things purely because they're politically possible right. if they don't solve the actual problems that you're dealing with. Mm. And I think that's something we really need to take forward over the next year or two. We must do things that are capable of solving our problems, even if they look politically difficult. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. Don't you think, therefore, that you know, we've become kind of addicted to short-termism, would you say? I think, you know, politics often is short-term. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we probably have got more addicted, I would say, to politics as kind of media manipulation. How does, you know, how do things look in the media the next day, the next week, whatever. Um, and I think there's been a a reluctance to make arguments from principle. And again, one of the things I say in this, this report is that we haven't talked about the principles of free market economies, economics, how a capitalist society works, what the role of profit, free choice, uh, all these things are making the economy tick. We've simply not really talked about that very much. We've been a bit embarrassed about it. And I think it's a very good sign, incidentally, that uh, Liz Truss is, is not embarrassed by talking about some of these things. You supported her, didn't you? Obviously? I did, yeah. yes, in the, in the campaign. And you know, we, we've got to get back to talking about these, these fundamentals. So 
people can understand. And actually, I think people are crying out for this. You know, people want authenticity. They want debate about actual issues and mm -hmm. things that are capable of uh, changing things. And in, in different ways, I think the Brexit referendum and everything that followed with that caught that. But also Jeremy Corbyn caught that. Mm -hmm. You know, he tapped into people's wish for things to be done differently yeah. in a malign way, mm -hmm. but he kept tapped into it. And we, we on the right must do the same. Yes. I suppose you could say in some sort of kind of hideous way, he was a conviction politician. Mm. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, many of the worst politicians have been conviction <laughs> politicians as well. It has to be said. So one, one needs to keep these things within limits. But you've got to stand for something. Yeah. other than just keeping the show on the road yeah. and that that's how it's felt i think in the last few years you start actually the essay with a quote from orwell um who's really must be the most quoted of our writers over the past five years yeah. but uh, we have sunk to a depth at which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men um what if you like do we need to restate them economically to begin with? Economically, we need to restate that um, the most prosperous countries are the countries that are have depend, depend on free markets, free market capitalism, have freedom in the way they, they, they look at the world and low taxes, letting people run their own lives, all these conservative nostrums produce prosperity. And I think there is a version uh, of one of the things that slightly worries me at the moment is there's, there's a version of politics on the right, the sort of um, red Tory or blue Labour, depending yeah, on where you're yeah. coming from, that seems to say we can get away from that. It's not as important um, as, it, as it once was. And I strongly disagree with that. If we don't um, anchor ourselves in an economics that produces prosperity and growth, we're going to have a problem we're just storing it up so those some of the obvious truths that look around the world it's obvious the most successful countries are the ones that are free market uh have freedom in their dna and allow people to experiment prosper and run their own lives along those lines economically but also for that matter culturally uh, one of the biggest complaints that we have not least from our viewers, but I mean, this is heard all over, is that here you had a nominally conservative government with a huge majority, which appeared to do very little that was conservative. Do you think it's fair? I think it's fair up to a point. Um, I think it, I, I would say there's been more of a sense of, it's been more a sense of drift mm -hmm. and in, in, inability to kind of reconcile um, different objectives. I think the, the situation we've got into is one where productivity hasn't grown for 10, 15 years. Um, there was an effect on the economy uh, as a result of leaving the single market and customs union. Obviously, there, there, there will be. Therefore, the most important thing is reform, growth, getting taxes down. And that should have been the priority. And I think what we saw was a kind of drift into um, leveling up social measures, kind of um, trivial, almost virtual signaling mm. measures like, you know, food bans and this, this and that. And there wasn't a story, there wasn't an agenda that people could get behind. Mm. And I think there now needs to be, there needs to be a plan, there needs to be a 
clear vision of what we are trying to do as a party. It's interesting because actually when Boris Johnson was elected, um, there did appear to be, at least at the beginning, a kind of very strong sense of what people could get behind. Mm. Um, you obviously famously resigned from, from the government. Um, because one of the reasons being um, was that the benefits of Brexit were not being realised adequately. Uh, how much was this drift down to personalities? I think, I mean, to be to be honest, I think, um, I mean, a lot of the things, to be fair, I think a lot of the things that are problematic were in the... Um, 2019 manifesto which mm. was composed in a, a very different moment economically and politically to the one we're in now um you know we didn't put a lot of emphasis on deregulation net zero is one of the five pledges so on not is not increasing taxes um uh so i don't think it's so much about people i think it's just it's that the the manifesto and the thinking reflected a world that was disappearing it was mm. the world of eu membership and all the debates that went with that and we're now in a new world and it took time to to realize that and i i, I don't think the previous government collectively ever did um i hope this one will so so for example the idea which you do uh touch on in in this uh, report of the nation state becoming stronger again do you think it's we have strengthened at all? Do you think that idea has strengthened at all in the past three years? Yeah, I think it has. Um, and we are in, in various ways. Um, uh, I, I think we're taking more decisions for ourselves yeah. again, which is good. Um, we're seeing politics come back into things that have not been particularly political trade policy, for example, you know, entirely non-political subject 50 years um, all of a sudden has come back to, to life with you know, debates about food standards and who we want to be open to and, yeah. and all this sort of thing. So I think we're seeing some normal politics coming back. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think the debates around um, devolution and independence and the very specific problem with Northern Ireland are still as live as, as ever. I think one of the problems we've got is that um, you know, the nation states become unfashionable. We don't really have the, the language to, to, to talk about it anymore in the, the same way. I think many people just see it as something from the past. Mm. Um, and to be modern, you've got to, you know, be a bit doubtful about borders and believe in high levels of migration and be a bit sort of skeptical about national loyalty and, and mm. so on. And we don't have the language for it. I think it's very interesting watching what's going on in the US and this, yeah. this sort of national conservatism movement, which, mm. which in my view has some strengths, but also some, some problems. But it's interesting, they have taken the words nation, nationalism and national, and I fear that's an irredeemably tainted word uh, in Europe. Mm. We need a language that is about the nation state, mm. nation statism, patriotism, loyalty, because the nation state is the best and most successful way we've found mm. so far mm. of allowing people to do politics and have different views within a common arena. Nobody's yes. come up with anything better yet and yes. we need to hang on to it. Yes. 
the, the, the national conservatism movement you talk about in America, is that, would that be the same as the, what they call the new, con, the new right? Uh, you know, I think they've recently had a conference down in Florida. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, um, NatCon 3. I think there are some, you know, there are different strands in that, that movement, yeah. I, I think, obviously. And it's, it's an attempt, as I see it, a bit to make sort of post-Trumpism kind of respectable. Mm. Um, and I think they, they have tapped into a lot of things that are important, mm. you know, the need for sort of self-respect and self-esteem in a, in a nation state, the need to have productive capacity, the need to kind of care about your history and culture and not see it kind of attenuate away to be serious about, about borders. Um, I think all that's really important. Mm. I, I think it does, you know, the, the fringes, it does seem to creep into um, nationalism that uh, uh, makes me feel a bit more uncomfortable at, at the edges. And of course, there is a particular relationship with religion and Christianity that is, is different in the US to the way things are here, and that gives it a different tone. But but I think it's interesting that they are, they're responding to some of the same needs and yes. um, developments, yes. I think, in an in a American way. Yes. In, in uh, the Holy Issues, uh, you also do mention various cultural aspects mm -hmm. to what we have to do. Um, and really, from the outside looking in, it is so rare that that happens in conservative circles, it seems to me, that in fact, uh, you know, in my experience at least, um, what I see um, as a full out, you know, attack on Western civilization, um, too many people in the Conservative Party seem to see it as being sort of PC gone mad. You know, they don't quite get it. Do you think that that's a fair, a fair judgment? I think a lot of people see it as um, marginal. You know, yeah. it's not that they don't share the opinion mm -hmm. that history is important, culture is important, um, and that we should kind of stand up and protect and care about these these things. I think they just see the phenomena as a bit marginal or a bit um, sort of peripheral to, to, yeah. to kind of normal politics. And I think that is beginning to, to change because you know, some of the phenomena are beginning to merge with each other. The, um, uh, the assault on our history, the assault on biology is mm. getting conflated with the free speech uh, issue that, that itself became an issue during the, the pandemic, I think. So I think we are seeing some of these problems you know, drift into mainstream politics. Mm -hmm. um, I do hope that this new government is going to tackle them a bit more seriously. I do myself think that the, the way to solve a lot of them is be serious about free speech. You know, I'm not interested in closing down debate in either direction. I think our arguments are good arguments and win the day mm -hmm. uh, when they're given a fair hearing. Mm -hmm. And you need, the government's role should be to protect the space for that debate and allow people to, to have it properly. How would they do that best, you think, David? How would they, how would they do that? Because I think there's, there's almost nobody who would disagree. Well, actually, having said that, when we look at younger people, mm -hmm. uh, it is alarming how actually they don't seem to care that much even about the concept. Um, or, or many of them anyway. But uh, given that most of us do, uh, how would the government best do that? Well, I think um, the constraint, there already are 
too many constraints on free speech mm. in my view there's obviously a sort of chilling effect from some of them at the margin that is that is discouraging debate i think they should be um the the um the online safety bill i think should be withdrawn or massively re rethought as a first step i'd agree with that yeah. i would like to see you know much clearer duties on um institutions not just universities but you know government institutions generally public sector institutions generally to protect free speech stand up free speech to make you know dismissing people on grounds of expressing a normal opinion mm. um not possible um i like to see clearer duties on social media com companies insofar as we can um to to do the same thing i think the whole trend at the moment is in the wrong direction mm. unfortunately that's going to mean the government standing up for people it intensely dislikes yeah. who aren't particularly pleasant necessarily yeah. uh, and with whom they disagree but if you don't do that you're not really in favor of free speech and that those difficult cases are where things get get tested look look at the you know, go back to 250 years to the first the debates around the first reporting of parliamentary proceedings. Yeah. That was very unpopular at the time, um, yet it happened. And yeah. you've, you've got to stand up for unpopular things as well as the things you like. Don't you think as well it sometimes comes down to just often people need to hear, just in speeches, they, they need to hear that people are on their side on these issues. Mm. I think that's what we seem not to have had very much of. Um, and I think when I think of during the time where we had the BLM marches and the statues were under threat and they were coming down, it seems to have cooled down a bit uh, since then. But um, yeah. there seemed to be a feeling that, you know, ministers had to be goaded into saying something. Yeah. Again, I think it's one of these areas where, you know, um, at least some of those responsible were trying to reconcile you know, basically irreconcilable objectives. So one day they said something that tilted in one way to the argument, and one day they said something that went in a different way. And I, I think you just, you just can't. Um, you know, people have got the right to say, in my view, what they wish, unless they're inciting violence. Public institutions should not be taking sides in these debates like the police mm -hmm. seem to at times. Mm. We need free speech, free debate. Let the best arguments win. And that's the best way through this. I, incidentally, I, I think another thing that scares people off a bit um, is what seems to me to be quite a coarsening in the tone of our public debate yes. in recent years. And I, I don't know whether social media is part of this, whether it's happened anyway, but the, you know, the very aggressive language, the, you know, the, the sort of foul mouth speech, the, the threats, the kind of sneering tone that is so much around that seems to me to be quite new and that's just the MPs <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you know a bit of courtesy a bit of um, kind of decency in the way we engage in these arguments on I think it's more a phenomenon in the left than the right but you do see it on the right mm -hmm. I, I think a bit you know let's all be a bit nice to each other maybe that will help I, I would I would agree with that I mean yes uh, uh, rule number one would be don't go on Twitter I suppose <laughs> but uh, it seems to me that uh, you know um, I have got a bit of uh, a dog in this fight I suppose but it, it does seem to me that it has come 
that kind of hatred and virulence has certainly come from the left. I mean, when you go back to Brexit, um, the, and you still see it on Twitter, don't you? People disowning their parents and things mm. like this. It's just appalling. Yes. It's just, just no humanity in it whatsoever. No. Um, you mentioned that we've talked a bit about uh, history. You mentioned there the attack on history. Again, um, I don't mean to sort of like land these things on you and you to come up with policy <laughs> ideas, but how, how best to protect history? I mean, you do mention that, it, that one of the reasons that we've become demoralized is that there's been decades of chipping away. Mm. I mean, certainly in my lifetime, I suspect yours, that's all I really remember. And that is undermining, however recently sounding, and we end up in this position where of, of well, the one we're in now. Mm. How can one possibly reverse or change that? Well, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of things. I mean, obviously, in schools, um, you know, the government can reasonably impose a duty to expose all sides of the the argument about Britain and its historical record. I mean, all sides of it, and I'm not convinced that is always happening at the moment. I think it, it can reasonably impose a duty to tell the whole sweep of British history, not just focus on sort of snapshots at mm. particular moments so that people kind of understand how we how we got to, to where we are. And again, I'm not sure that's happening. People often seems to me have quite a, a sort of weak understanding mm. of some of the, mm. the things that would have been common knowledge maybe 50 or 100 years ago. Um, I think also we, you know, the kind of very deeply rooted teleological Whig theory of history that we have in this country is, is in some ways it's part of the problem, you know, that British history has been an evolution from monarchy into democracy, the growth of institutions. That is definitely part of the story, but it has enabled people to say, well, we're now, you know, that process is still going on. The next phase is the gradual dissolution of the nation state into to something else, into you know, a world where where borders matter less. Mm. That is the natural next development. And there, I think, you have to distinguish history from politics. Yes. History is how people responded to the trends, the developments around them when they were alive. And mm. they took the decisions and acted, you know, in accordance with morality politics that prevailed at the time you can't use that as a sort of moral exemplar for mm. guiding your 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 yourself now mm. we're doing the same things mm. and um i i worry that history has become politics mm. a bit mm. and um it's important to try and distinguish the two yes. uh, i would yes. say yes. doesn't mean you can't learn from history but yes the past was different they yeah. did things differently there well pe I, it, people seem to have been disarmed in that they no longer know as you say certain things you might have once taken for granted so they actually don't really know what they're meant to be defending particularly they mm. they understand that something is sort of under attack but they can't bring forth the words it's very difficult to bring forth the words to defend yeah i think that is right and um Again, it goes back to this point about nation, nationalism, nation mm. status, and what, what is it that we are defending mm. and why? And I go back to the, um, you know, we are defending a, 
um, a country that has evolved through history and a set of ways of doing politics that has proved to be pretty successful. Mm. And you know, all that comes with a kind of emotion and colour and historical content mm. that has got us to, to where we are. That's the sort of political science way of, of putting it, but, uh, but I think it's true. Um, and, uh, you know, there've always been people who want to weaken that. I mean, Orwell himself, you know, is, is famously highly critical of left-wing intellectuals who, you know, would, won't stand for God save the king and all yeah. that. Um, that, I think, is, um, you know, it's always been part of our, our, our sort of politics. But I, I agree, we, I mean, we ourselves, I think, even in this discussion, sort of struggling for the language that, um, you know, kind of, <laughs> makes it real to people, gives it a, a kind of emotional component that people can respond to. I suppose in order to, in order to try and make it real, take for example, the sheer incomprehension people feel at our big institutions, our museums and such like, mm. um, taking on a political role, apparently, seemingly, mm. uh, decolonizing, whether it's the British Library, whether it's the British Museum, right down to Kew Gardens. Mm. What should happen in those situations? I mean, should people, should they lose their public money? I mean, if, if they go beyond their remit? I mean, I think it is very difficult here. I mean, the government does have a bit of a bully pulpit in this these matters to, to kind of stigmatise or, or otherwise particular behaviour. I mean, but it comes back to, you know, I don't particularly want the government to tell the people at Kew Gardens that they can or cannot uh, uh, teach or yes. behave in certain ways. I think that carries risks as well. And you know what's happening in our institutions is a is a symptom of something that's already quite deep in the the kind of intellectual class. That isn't a, mm. a cause of it. Um, we have to provide the space for people who think differently to to be allowed to to say it. So you know, I've no doubt there are people in. Kew Gardens just stay one. I mean, it seems unfair to take this example, really, because I love Kew Gardens and uh, I was uh, at its um, uh, Sussex out post Wakehurst only yesterday. But um, it, it, you know, it, it, people have got to feel empowered to speak differently. We mustn't have the sense that there's only one correct set of opinions that that set of opinions is the only thing that can be represented on the boards of our major institutions, end of story. That mm. we, we've got to keep the space for debate and discussion. Um, would you be part of this government? I, I believe that you've been asked, haven't you, uh, if you would be, and, and, and you haven't accepted it. Mm. So is that correct? Well, we, I, I mean, I don't want to go into the, no. the, the detail, but we, we had a couple of discussions uh, and, um, it, 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 I felt it, it wasn't quite the areas where I felt I was most able to kind mm. of contribute. So we we left it at that, and mm. um, you know that's that's fine. Mm. You know I, I support the government as long as it's doing the right things, and it mm. seems to be showing good signs of of that at the moment. And um, I feel like I'm probably best support by sort of saying and um, kind of contributing to the public debate around it. Although since uh, you know you were negotiating Brexit and everything, you, your profile has become much wider, and you know you must be aware of people, uh, a lot of people admiring the positions you've taken, 
not least on, uh, on, on the climate, for example, <laughs> the lack of a climate emergency. I yeah. think you must have got it in the neck for that, I'm sure. I, I definitely have. I mean, a lot of support <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of, of criticism. And, um, yeah, uh, I mean, you know, people have been kind enough to say they thought I ought to have some role and still and still should. But, but you know, I, I, that's, that's sort of up to them. Yes. Um, I don't think that... You know, my presence is essential to a Liz Truss government that is doing a lot of the things that I, I agree with. Right. So that's that's kind of how I would look at it. When would, have you always been sort of interested in politics? Have you, since when you were a kid, were you? Yeah, I was. And, um, I, you know, all through my, my life, really. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, my opinions have changed with time, as, as many people's have. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I went into politics, into civil service, mm -hmm. diplomatic service, was it, it was a it was a way of being in that that world, if you like, without taking all the risks yes. that um, a kind of real politician has to. But the reason I left was I got frustrated yeah. with not being able to say and say mm -hmm. what I think and be, you know do what I I thought mm -hmm. and. You know, you don't lose those constraints in other organisations, but it's it's particularly acute in the civil service, and that that was the frustration that led me to move on in the end. When you first became interested in politics, were you in a, what you might call an instinctive conservative, or 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 not, or just interested in the whole procedure? So, I find, I mean, I was. I was on the left when I was young, um, uh, um, student and, and a school and this this sort of thing. And my my opinions changed quite fast once I sort of hit the real world, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I do think that one of the things I find frustrating about the left is that they seem to have abandoned a lot of the things that I thought ought to have been important to the left, and we, we've been talking about some of them, you know, high standards in education, high standards in culture, belief in the, the nation state. Go back 30, 40, 50 years, those were important parts of left-wing culture, of working-class culture. You know, you wouldn't find somebody like um, Ernie Bevin pouring scorn on any of those subjects, quite the reverse. And, you know, one of the reasons I moved on from the left, I think, is because uh, the left itself seemed to have abandoned things that seemed like important to me mm -hmm. in the way you run a, a country and a good society. And actually, I think quite a few people on the left themselves yes. feel some yes. of that. And they've drifted. There's a phenomenon, I think, of people left-wing people are intellectuals who think they are on the left but aren't mm. and they haven't kind of acknowledged it to themselves yet they've moved to the right mm. because the things they thought were important left-wingers and the Labour Party no longer do but being on the left is so important to their self-identity mm. they can't mm. quite acknowledge it mm. and I, I find that that's quite revealing about what's important in politics to me. Yes. Do you think, I mean, this is part of that really, but do you think that there was this extraordinary thing, wasn't there, where the Red Wall, uh, you know, sort of fell to the Conservatives? Mm. But it was such an opportunity. Do you think that is one of the things that has been completely wasted? 
It was kind of revolutionary, really, in many mm. ways. Um, I think there are quite a few fallacies around about the Red, the Red Wall. Let's not forget that um, Mrs. Thatcher won a good chunk of what's now the Red Wall in mm. the, the mm. mid-80s. Um, it's not quite as new or astonishing as, as people say sometimes, and she won it with an appeal to you know, getting control of your own life again mm. from the socialist bureaucracies who ran it and told you you didn't have any future other than sort of stay where you were and vote Labour. Now, it's different now, um, but I think some of the appeal to run your own life, get on with things, prosper, um, is still important mm. in the red wall as well as in the, the blue wall. Um, I think we did tap into a kind of patriotism, mm. belief in democracy and belief that the referendum result obviously should be respected. I think that's that's really important. But I don't draw the conclusion that we won lots of Labour seats, therefore we need to have lots of sub-Labour policies to, to keep them. Yeah. People came over because they realised they had they actually had a different set of values somewhat mm. and the Brexit vote kind of legitimised people realising that and you know we must give conservatism to people who voted conservative yeah. in yeah. my view yeah. uh, it, it, it's it's a mistake to go into in a different direction yes and we we talked a bit about history but I, I just wonder having been so involved in in Brexit um, over the past years uh, what's your general view David of where it's going there not that one should care but I think we sort of should care. Do you think it is an empire in decline, and the EU generally, regardless almost of Brexit? I think it's getting exhausted mm. as a project. Um, you know, you can see the believers still wanting to use every crisis to um, produce a further leap in integration, you know, whether it's through the euro or the, the stability mechanism or whatever, or now it's let's get rid of qualified majority voting in foreign policy, Ukraine shows you need it and so on. Each time you get that. But I think the the kind of moral force of that has got a lot weaker over the years. And I think the reason is that integration has gone so deep in the EU now that it's, it's touching you know, the fundamentals of what it is to run a country yeah. or to be an independent yeah. country. And people in Europe can see that as as well as, as anybody else. And, you know, the fact that migration has been such a big debate and borders and, and so on. Um, even the role of the court in the French election, you know, a bit. All these things are, are there. So I think, it personally, I think it's reached its natural limits or close to them in terms of integration. Um, I don't think it's going to go much further. I don't think they'll be able to sort of admit that to themselves. I don't see it kind of unwinding much, therefore, for, this, for the same reason. Um, you know, I, I, I claim intellectual property slightly in being the first person to compare the EU to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, <laughs> which I did in a lecture in 2008. Mm. Um, but I think it's still valid. You know, the it sort of works after a fashion, but they can't get the energy to go in any real direction. And just like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were as much a problem for their allies as uh, a strength yeah. for them.
and that that I think we're seeing at the moment as well. I I think you know do get hold of of this report uh, of policy exchange report if you can because it's 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 fascinating, very very interesting to read. There's one very specific thing you say actually, David. I'd like you just to tell us why, and that is that the Equalities Act should be abolished. You're quite clear about that. Mm. Well, I think it, the problem with the Equalities Act is that it, it bears more heavily on the public sector and, than on the private sector, though it hits both. There are a set of specific duties on public sector organisations, government and all the, all the others around it to you know, ensure um, uh, that these certain protected characteristics are protected. Right. And the, the, and, and in a very intrusive way, and of course government's particularly vulnerable to judicial review and all the other stuff that goes around that. And what, what's happened is that we've seen you know, this massive growth of internal bureaucracy that is aimed at protecting and ensuring diversity and ensuring the protection of all these characteristics. And it's, it's one of the reasons why we've seen HR in the public sector grow hugely, why there appears to be this huge diversion of effort to worrying about this all the time um, and um, it's not easy for the people who run the departments whether they're ministers or the, the top civil servants to say we're just not going to bother about this anymore because it's there in in mm, law mm. they they can't not pay attention to some extent mm. and every time they don't they're taking a bit of a risk um, so I don't see any alternative but to actually weaken the legal duties and get them proportional again so that you know the, the primary um, duty of government departments comes to be again doing the job that they're constituted yes. for and not yes. worrying about the composition of the employees. Well actually we, uh, we had a, an interview on recently with one of our most popular for a long time <clears throat> journalist called Juliet Samuel who mm. was talking about HR um, yes and it really struck a chord with people because obviously most people have come across HR in their time and it was as you say this extraordinary way in which the aim of what they do has been is diverged completely from actually what they're meant to do is to imposing another sort of form or an ideology one would say actually. yeah I, I think it's become like that in mm. certain places you know you, you you do find good HR officers in the civil service and and areas of kind of common sense where people kind of try and keep the show on the road without getting overwhelmed by all this stuff but mm -hmm. but all the pressures are in the other direction mm -hmm. and um it is one of the reasons why the ministers have just found it so difficult to get a grip in this mm -hmm. area and why some civil servants at least seem to think they don't have to pay too much attention to ministers who disagree with them on it because mm -hmm. there it is in in the law but it's mm. it's just a you know a specific case of the general problem yeah. that there's too much superstructure yes. that is stopping people doing their job and you see that in all sorts of areas that's you know we've got a productivity problem that is undoubtedly one of the reasons yes definitely um i know we've sort of got to we've got to uh, close in a minute um with history in mind um how do you think how do you think boris johnson will be remembered in history I think history will think more kindly of him than think? many people do at the moment, uh, to be honest. I, you know, to me, he is, I, I loved working with, with yes. Boris. Um, it, it, it was a, um, you know, a, a moment of intense sort of psychological crisis, I suppose, when I had to do what I thought 
thought was the right thing and and leave and um you know I, a lot of things that have happened in this country wouldn't have happened uh without him mm -hmm. you know undoubtedly um we would still be in the eu mm -hmm. if 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 he and i i think without blowing our own trumpet too much uh, me and Dominic Cummings had not been in these places at the right time. I think we would still be in the, the EU and yeah. he deserves huge credit for that. For all the criticism on the pandemic, which, you know, I've been quite prominent in. Nevertheless, we didn't get lockdowns like a lot of other countries mm. got them. We did mm. come out of them first. I think Boris is always a bit uncomfortable uh, with it. I just wish he trusted his own judgment a bit more on that. You know, and he saw the moral urgency on on Ukraine. Mm. To me, it's a real, you know, he was a great man brought down by a, a, a tragic flaws, really. Things that, you know, people could see he should do something about, but somehow never could. Mm. And in the end, caught up with him. But he should have realized that um, you can't give your enemies too much ammunition. And <laughs> unfortunately, carried on doing that. So, so I think, you know, looking back, this is obviously going to be a uh, you know, a, a hugely important pivotal period in the history of this country and he has been at the the heart of that mm. he's put the country onto a, a new course sadly he's not there to help steer it but that's politics and i'm sure we've done the right thing also um, there's no question that the kind of collectivism that you talk about has been embedded further by the pandemic actually hasn't it it really has, I yeah. think, and I think we're just beginning to realise the mm. the kind of psychological, cultural, political effects of it, which have gone quite a lot deeper than people thought. Mm. I mean, it had a big effect on me, mm. uh, and I think you know uh, people have been reflective about it and mm. often said the same thing. I realised governments could do things that they, you know, in the past we thought they they couldn't, um, and you know the whole way free speech in practice got restricted on certain issues. Um, the whole inability to kind of debate certain facts, mm. honestly, I found, you know, extremely troubling. Mm. And um, it's a huge relief that we've got out of it. But, but you know, unfortunately, I don't think these things have been quite put back in the bottle no. yet. No. And it's been another turn of the handle to take us in a more collectivist direction and you know it's so important this this government says stop yeah David thank you very very much yeah. for joining us and giving us your time and um, do hope that it, you are up there in government at some point whatever happens we <laughs> thank you very much uh, thank fun. you very much indeed uh, that's it for so what you're seeing is this week um, we shall see you next time thank you very much Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, 
and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.